guys had been appointed, I, said, I gave my brother Henani, and Henani, the, uh, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of them at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came out, out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away in exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilsham, Mispereth, Bigvi, Neham, Bena. And from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, we thank you for another week to worship together. We thank you for our life, Lord, that we are here, that we have another breath to praise you. Lord, as we uh, seek to understand what principles this passage is teaching us, we ask that you'd open the eyes of our hearts, that you'd open our minds, open our spirits uh, to you and what you might have to say with us. We thank you, God. We give you all the praise and glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So this week, we come to this passage that shows us that the wall has finally been completed. It's one of these occasions that's so momentous because... We've been spending the whole of the study of Nehemiah so far leading up to this moment. Every chapter has been about the wall being built and the trials and the struggles and everything that went into it. And finally, the wall is done. The walls are strong. The gates are closed. The people are safe. And we see now that the wall has been completed Nehemiah turns to another building project. And the building project is now to build the society of Jerusalem. The city, the city walls are done, but the people still need to be built up. Government needs to be established. Faith needs to be put in its center place. Thriving needs to be uh, instituted. All these things need to be built up in this, uh, in this city. So we see that now Nehemiah's task is to build the city up 
of Jerusalem, not just its walls, but its people and its society. And as we look at these chapters, as I just mentioned before, it's a miraculous thing that the wall ever got built, that he could move beyond the wall to something else. We see that Nehemiah was in this place where he was able to be the one to kind of stand in the gap, to be in this place to make those walls get built. I mean, the, it's a miracle the wall got built after all that we read in all, in all uh, six chapters so far, all the opposition, the trials, the, the danger, the enemies, everything that happened, the wall is built. And we see that Nehemiah was uniquely in this place to be the one to get that wall built. He was uniquely present and uniquely placed to be the one to make it happen. We see this throughout Nehemiah's story. Nehemiah is both Babylonian from upbringing, but uh, a Jewish person by faith and ancestry. Nehemiah had a position of power in the Persian government. Nehemiah had a deep and kind of introspective faith that led him to, uh, to discern and to uh, care about God's will. Nehemiah had character uh, um, traits of persistence and stubbornness. Nehemiah had leadership gifts that made him the right person at the right time in the right place to do what God had him to do. God had really formed his whole life for such a time as this to build those walls, to bring back the people of exile into Jerusalem. God had formed him, and really we could argue that he was the only one that could have done it. The only one that bridged both cultures, that could get the king's approval, that could win the hearts of the, uh, the people from Jerusalem, that could make it happen. That he was the only one that could have done the work that needed to be done at that time. And as I was thinking about that this week... I was also reminded of how this kind of applies to us. That Nehemiah, we see that he's this unique man placed at this unique time to do this unique purpose that God had really formed him and equipped him to do. So that got me to wondering, what is our unique purpose? What has God formed you and led you and put you in the right place at the right time to do? What is that unique thing that God has equipped you through your experience, through your struggles, through your background, through your personality, through uh, your trials even, through uh, your relationship with God? What has he placed you for? That you are the right person at the right time, at the right place for this thing that God has called you to do. Now, most of us are not going to build a wall, I don't think. Most of us are not going to do something globally impactful for the faith, though maybe God will call some of us to do that. But all of us kind of have this sense that God has a calling on our life. So the question then is, what has God uniquely kind of formed and transformed us to do or to be? And this is a really interesting question to think about in your life. I don't know if you thought about that a lot. I mean, I, I don't think about that a lot. This week, I've been thinking about it a lot just because of the question that arose from the text. But it's hard to think about because it's kind of a crazy-making question, in a sense. 
Because we can think, well, I don't know what has God uniquely made me to do. I don't know what am I supposed to do, where am I supposed to go, what am I supposed to, you know, who, who am I supposed to talk to? God's will is often kind of seen as a highway in the scripture. It tells us who God is, who God has made us to be, and where we're called to go. Love God, love others. Give grace, receive grace. Receive the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those things are kind of a highway. But often we are kind of looking for a hiking path. Like, tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. And it's hard when that doesn't happen because we could go, well, I don't know what God has uniquely made me for. I don't know what all my experiences and trials and struggles and what God's teaching me is going to kind of meld into in this life. And I don't think most of us really know that conclusively. But the one thing we do know is that who you are is useful to God's purposes. That's something you got to just believe for a second. You may not believe me. I think it's hard to really believe that who you are is useful to God's purposes. You know, sometimes when I counsel people, I'm like, hey, stop. You, you, you need to believe this. Just try to believe this for a second. And this is something we got to just try to believe. That who you are, with your personality and your struggles and your background and your culture and your um, relationship with God the way it is right now, who you are is useful to God. That's a promise I think we see in Scripture. When God redeems us through Jesus Christ, he makes us something we weren't. We see this all throughout the New Testament. God takes us from an orphan to a child of God, from no land to having a people, from no worth to having a a worth as a citizen of of God's kingdom, from having no kind of uh, calling to having a calling to be an ambassador of God's love and grace to the world. So you have a purpose. Who you are is useful to God. Something you just got to take my word for. (laughs) If you can't believe it, I encourage you just to try for a second to go, I, who I am, is useful to God. And if we understand that, then the question, next question is, so what is your wall? What is your wall? The wall that you are called to build. Now, I'm not talking about a physical wall. You know, walls keep people out. We don't want to be keeping people out. But what is that thing or that uh, part of God's kingdom that God has called you to contribute to? It could be a ministry that you, are, that you see needs help and you want to contribute to or you're passionate about and you want to, to help succeed. It could be a person that could use a friend. That's a way you could build into God's kingdom purposes. It could be a marriage, your marriage, that needs tending and caring. That's a way you can build into God's purposes and kingdom. It could be a son or daughter, your son or daughter, that needs your care and love and affection. That's a way that you can build God's kingdom. It could be the church that needs support and guidance. It could be a city that needs your love and help. 
It could be a world that needs Jesus. It could even be the building of your faith and the building of wisdom and the building of love. All of those things are ways that we can build. Now, there are many ways that I think God calls us to build in this way in our lives. And, you know, and it's hard to think about which one am I building right now? What am I doing? But I was thinking about this this morning, just as I was reflecting on this as I was preparing. And it struck me that, you know, one of the things that I'm uniquely kind of called and capable of and uniquely positioned for that I am called to build into God's kingdom is my son, Eben. I am his only father in the world right now. <laughs> and until there's, you know, something changes, I am the one that God has put in in place to be his father, to show him the love of Christ, to help build and care for him even though life is hard. And in the same way, I am Catherine's only husband. I am the only one uh, that, that calls my, her my wife. And so I also have a calling to her, a unique calling in my life that I am uniquely, I'm the only one in the world that can do that at this point to be her husband. And in the same way, I am called to be me. I have been formed by God and given unique gifts and strengths. I have gone through experiences and struggles that form my outlook on life. I have been given a calling and a job and people to work with. That is my calling to do what I do, to be who God has called me to be, to grow in grace, to love God and to love people. That is that is who God has uniquely called me to be, the, the wall God has called me to build. And it's the same with you. You can think about those things that you alone uniquely are positioned at this moment to do. And that is simply then the wall that you're called to build. The ways that you're called to contribute with God's grace through the direction of the Holy Spirit to the building of God's kingdom in your home, in your school, among your friends, in this place, in Queens, in New York City, in the world. So today we're going to talk about that, and we're talking about that in this passage that, as we just read it, as Anne just always uh, so expertly reads it, even those hard names. I, just by the way, if you read that whole chapter, there are 50 more verses of names. 50. It's like 74 verses total in that passage. And I only gave her one verse of names, but I didn't want to, you know, go through all of those. But there's a lot of names in this passage. All the, the people who were sent to exile who came back um, from exile and were back into uh, Jerusalem. And we see through this long list, we could, it's easy to kind of just go, oh, just another list, another ancient accounting of things that happened I don't need, you know, there's nothing like God is, you know, telling me from this. But really in this passage, we see some pillars of how we are called to build. We see how Nehemiah built, what his values for building, the pillars in his life that he uh, thought were important enough to be the primary things that would hold up the ministry that he was building. And so in our life, in the ways we're called to build, we see these pillars as well that are called to hold up the ministries, the work, the ways we step out and step into God's plan. And these are worship, partnership, and alertness. We see that together, these are ways that Nehemiah kind of 
develop these pillars that would hold up what he was doing. So today we're going to look at these three as ways uh, for us of developing these pillars, these strongholds for us, as we seek to build what God is calling us to build. That these are the things that are going to strengthen us. These are the things that are going to hold us up. These are the things that are going to keep our ministry going. And we see that all of these have to do with being together in some way. They're not Lone Ranger kind of things you do alone. They're things you do together. So we're going to talk about how, what these pillars are, how they work in our life, and how we also do them together. So we begin with the first pillar of faithful building, which is worship. We see in verse 1 this comes out. Nehemiah says, After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. So again, you know, a very short, concise description of something that happened thousands of years ago. But here we see kind of the values of Nehemiah in building this society that he was building. The first uh, people he appoints are gatekeepers. Because, you know, you can't have gates without gatekeepers. You know, nobody's watching the gates. Anyone can get in. But the second two appointments are the interesting ones. He appoints musicians and Levites. Now, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll see over and over and over again that musicians play this central role in Israel's worship. Now, you know, when we come to worship, we could think, oh, yeah, you know, we sing a little bit. Yeah, it's just, you know, that's what we do. And then we hear the word or then we, you know, study scripture or whatever else you might think is the pillar of kind of worship. But for Nehemiah, singing was a pillar, a main pillar of worship. So before a preacher was even appointed, the singers were appointed. And this kind of shows a lot about what's important for us because worship, again, can just be another thing we do. If we're not careful, it can be another ritual. We go, oh, Sundays, yeah, I could read the paper, I could sleep, um, could go to the park, I could do something else, could go to brunch, or I could go to worship. But here we see that worship is central. Worship leaders and musicians were the first appointed after the guards, and then Levites, who were really the, the worship leaders of ancient Israel. They were the priests. They were the pastors. So right away you see this importance of worshiping, and especially worshiping together. It was what Nehemiah wanted to be at the center of their local, personal, and national life. He wanted to make central in the community a knowledge of who God is and a remembrance of what God has done and is doing in our lives. And, we can, and I think as Christians, if you've been to church for a while, I don't think you're going to disagree with that. It's not a foreign concept. Of course, we're all going to say, yes, worship is important. That's why we're here. That's why we're singing. That's why we do the things we do. But in this passage, we get a sense of why it's important. And we can see that worship is important because it defines our values. That's why worship is central to our lives. Because it defines what we care about. It defines who we are and what we, what we are going towards. It devalues what we, where we want to go and, who our identity, and what our identity is. That is what worship does. Jamie Smith, a scholar from Calvin Seminary, describes it this way. He said, worship 
isn't something we just do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it's the gymnasium where God retrains our hearts. So think about worship that way for a second. That you are not here just because someone told you to or you're, you know, you're supposed to or um, you know, it's just what you do on a Sunday. You are here because it's the place where weekly God retrains your heart. It is a place where we come and God starts to reshape us. He challenges our values. He gives us new insight and purpose. He shows us again and again who God is. The songs that we sing are not just fluff. They're, they're retelling the story of who God is. God is with us. God is for us. That's telling the whole story of the Israelites, that song. That is a song that could have been the rallying cry of Israel from, you know, uh, from Moses taking them out of slavery to uh, their entrance into the promised land. God is with us. God is for us. God has is, God is made a way. Telling the story again and again. All these show, songs, though they may seem, you know, you may not always understand the context of them, they are always retelling the story of God's uh, love and sacrifice and salvation to us. So that's why we're singing them. If you have a bad voice or have no voice or you, you don't ever like to sing or think you sing, still sing loud. Because as you sing, singing has this special emotional way to touch us deeply, more deeply than I can preach. I hope my words get to you when I'm preaching, but, but music has a way to sing deeper. That's why we love it so much. That's why we can remember the words to our favorite songs. That's why we hear a melody and we're like, oh, yep, that's that song. You know, we know it because it sinks deeply to us. And so as we remember worship, we're called to remember again that we're not here for us. We're not here to do something for God. It's not like we're doing God a favor being here. We're here because God is doing something for us. God's people, he has always formed them with the centerpiece of worship to remind them that they are not their own, that we are God's people. And so that's why it's important to worship together. You know, in our modern age, we never have to go to church to get like the best of worship like from around the world. Like if you think about it, we never have to come here. Like, you can hear the best preachers in the world just by clicking a button. You can watch videos of the best church services that the world has to offer. Like, amazing worship services, the highest quality. It's just, it really, we never have to leave our home. I mean, I don't know if you've even heard of this, but lately there's, like, now virtual church happening in virtual reality. Like, with, you know, the headsets and everything, or the... Yeah, it's happening. And even now, like in Japan, there was this, um, this Buddhist monastery that now has a, a robot, like an android, giving, you know, the Buddhist uh, kind of prayers and messages. And the Japanese worshipers like it because, you know, it's relevant. It uses all the popular language. You know, they can just, like, upload every, you know, every, like... Uh, relevant thing in anyone's life to make sure this android can make a message that is always perfectly relevant and everything. But I'm sure you can kind of see that there's something missing with that, right? 
I mean, I think all of us, we can listen to Hillsong, we can listen to the best worship music in the world at home. We just have to put our headphones on. We can take it out jogging. But worship happens in community. You can only practice worship in community. You can't practice worship jogging on your own. And you might wonder, but well, I can. I can sing. I can praise God. Yes, we can practice that aspect of worship. But how the Bible defines worship is this communal act of glorifying God. So, for example, I can't practice glorifying God completely by myself. I can practice it in some ways by myself. But to practice glorifying God in worship, I need people. Because glorifying God means i got to forgive you. And i got to love you as Christ loved. And i got to care for you as Christ cares. And I gotta, I, that's what glorifying God means. It's seeing God's glory and goodness and all its wonderful beauty. And seeing what God loves and then participating in that. Drawing near to that. Drawing near to what God loves. So then I need you to glorify God. To understand what it means. To really know what it means. To receive grace I need to be in a community where I can give grace and receive grace. You know, I think for me, like my personality type, it's so hard to receive praise. It's hard to receive, like, real care and love. But sometimes I've just been learning, you just got to receive it because that's part of what it means to grow is just learning to receive grace and love from people and then to give it. We cannot do that alone. I mean, all the resources we have are amazing to help us grow in faith. They're, I'm not knocking them at all because I think we have like an unprecedented ability in this age to have many resources to help us grow in faith. But we can never forget that we still need these people. We need each other. We need each other. Even with our faults and our struggles, even people you don't like so much, you need that person. To grow in faith, you need that person to glorify God. You need that person to remind you that God is good. You need that person to remind you that God wants you to love. You need that person to remind you of grace, which comes out of your inability to to care and do what you should be doing. You need those people. You need each other. I need you. You need me. So we learn that in worship. That worship is not just about us, and that's a pillar then. That's a, way, that's a foundation of our ministry. Where you're called to build, you need people around you to help. We see this idea of partnership all throughout this passage. We see it in the next verse. Nehemiah stated that, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. So we see that after worship is established, leadership is established. Nehemiah, if you remember from last chapter, I don't know if you remember last week. Um, I don't always remember last week either. But last week we talked about like this betrayal that Nehemiah experienced. All the nobles and the leaders, even the prophet, one of the prophets of Jerusalem, they betrayed him. They all were like saying, oh, you're great to your face. But then they were taking bribes from, the, from Nehemiah's enemies behind his back. So Nehemiah didn't know who his friends were. 
he didn't know who his enemies were, so he needed people he could trust. And look at the standard for trust that he sees here. Hananiah was picked because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people. So Nehemiah was not looking for the most skilled people. He was not looking for, like, the most popular people. He was looking for people of integrity and people of faithfulness and reverence for God. And this is something when we think about, when you go out and seek to build in the way God is calling you to build, you need people. You need these people, this community. We need each other. But we also need people of integrity. We need people who are honest and people who do what they say they're going to do. And we also need people who are faithful to God, that they are fully devoted to God. So if we want to have people of integrity to work with, we need to firstly be people of integrity. We need to be the people we want to work with. As I was thinking about this this week, I was remembering uh, something one of my old college uh, professors said to me. Uh, I was struggling with dating in college, and just uh, I think I'd just broken up with someone. And I was kind of lamenting to my college professor, but Jerry, am I, never gonna, am I ever going to meet anyone? How am I going to meet someone? Help me. There's got to be other classmates that you could set me up with. Um, and Jerry said this to me. He said, don't worry right now about finding someone to be with, but focus on being the kind of person you would want someone to be with. And that was really kind of guided me through the next years of going, yeah, let me be a person that when I finally, you know, that God brings that other person in my life, I will be a blessing to them. I will be helpful to them, hopefully, um, and I will be caring to them. And when we think about that in terms of integrity, it's the same thing. If you want people of integrity in your life, firstly, seek to be a person of integrity. Seek to be someone who is honest and, and strong, to be someone who is firm in their faith, to be someone who loves consistently, to be someone who gives grace, cares about people not for just what they can give you, but cares for someone because God cares for them. Grow in those attributes, and then we will find other people who will come alongside us in that as well, and we'll have a better way to look for those people as well. That's the first challenge I see in here, is that to work well with others, we have to be growing in integrity and character and faithfulness. It's easy to blame others. I mean, we've all been in those situations, right, where we're, we're working in a ministry with someone, we're on a team with someone, and we're like, oh, they're so frustrating. They're not doing what they should be doing. Ah, oh, I don't, ah. Oh. They do this, they do that, they do this. It is so easy to focus on other people. But firstly, the scriptures always tell us, always, there's never an exception here, that we are called to focus on our own character before we focus on blaming other people and their lack of character or their lack of whatever we think they lack. So as we work toward our own integrity, we're called to gather other people around us to do the work we're called to do. We're not called to be lone rangers. I mean, we see this throughout the scriptures. You know, when, the, when lone rangers happen in the scripture, nothing good happens. Just look at throughout the, the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. 
When anyone goes out just to do it by themselves, like think of Samson, for example, uh, it never works. They always just get tempted or they get defeated. It never works to go out by yourself. But we see that David had Jonathan. We see Jesus had the 12. We see Paul and Peter. They always developed leaders and sent them out into their ministries. Always they worked together. And this is our challenge as well. You know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about in our ministries here at Newtown is that we should do everything in teams. Everything should be more than one person. If you're like me, it's easy to just go do it myself. I've always kind of had that attitude is I will get it done. If you don't get it done, I'll get it done. I'll try to do it. But actually, we need to be developing teams together so we can do it together. I don't know if you've ever been the only one in charge of something. I mean, often you feel isolated. You feel frustrated. People aren't coming alongside you. You feel alone. And then eventually, you just burn out. You're like, I'm done. I'm taking a sabbatical from everything. I don't want to do this anymore. I know you've been there. I've been there. But that's just not the way it's supposed to be, right? We see here that there's a value in coming together. There's a value in holding each other's burdens. And that's always going to happen imperfectly in any church, in any group. But we see that we're called to try here. We're always called to try to bring other people around us to come be with other people to work for God's uh, kingdom-building purposes together. You know, this week as I was reflecting upon this, I was thinking about my own personality. And like, I see the world a certain way. Because of who I am, my personality, my experience, background, skills, I see the world in a different way than I think many of you. I have different kind of uh, perspectives. I pick up different things than, I, than maybe some others do. And I've always seen that, that. And as I grow in my understanding as God works in my life, I, I see that I sometimes see something differently than other people do. Some people don't see certain things. I see that. They don't see it. But also I've been realizing lately as well that other people have different perspectives than I do that are just as valuable than mine. That people around me are seeing things that I'm not seeing either. That their experience and background and, and their, uh, t- God's formation of them, they're also seeing the world in a different way, but it's valuable. Just, yeah, just over the past like months, I've been realizing that we all have unique perspectives and we should be valuing those. That on a team, I don't need people who are just like me. That doesn't help anything. Because we're all going to just see a certain way. I need people who can see things all kinds of different ways. And who have different gifts and backgrounds and experiences so that we can serve God's people in a much greater way than I could serve God's people on my own. And so as we see each other and look in this community, we could see like, oh yeah, your way of looking in the world is not as good. Well, my way is obviously better than yours. But instead, we're called to say, hey, how do you, how do you view this? How do, how do you see this? What's God been telling you about this? And then we can see that actually, together, God's work and God's plan and God's will becomes broader and wider. It becomes bigger. We can actually see in a greater way when we're walking together. Again, why it's so important for us to be together. 
And as we seek worship and community, we also see that uh, Nehemiah gives a warning here as well. He says in verse uh, 3, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their houses. It's kind of an odd request, if you think about it. The gates are not to be opened until the sun is hot. So that would be like 2 to 4 in the afternoon. That's the only time the gates are supposed to be opened. It kind of, you know, you'd think that you'd want the gates open all day to kind of people come in and out, trade to flourish, things like that. But really what's happening here is that Nehemiah is worried about attack. He, he knows his enemies are all around, and they could find any way to come in. So he wanted the gates only to be open for a couple hours at the time of day that would be most inconvenient for an army to march so that they would be most able to kind of uh, face any uh, attack that came. So here, really, the, the warning is to be alert. Because even though the walls are built or getting built, there's always forces that are seeking to destroy them. And as we seek to build in the ways God is calling us, also we need to be aware that there are forces within and without that are seeking to destroy God's work. You know, I was thinking about that, about what are the forces that destroy God's work. Selfishness destroys God's building and his work. When we're focused on ourselves, yeah, we're not focused on others and, and God. Faithlessness destroys worship. It destroys community. You come here and you don't have faith or not believe in God, then this is just ritual to you. This is just another thing you do. And if you look at it through that lens, then there's no life. It just becomes about structure and form and buildings and not about God and his work in the world. Laziness, a huge aspect of selfishness. That we can just be lazy about our faith. I'll do that I'll do that tomorrow. I don't really need to study the word. Yeah, I don't know. That's, I can do that another day. That type of laziness can just paralyze us. And then we wonder why we're not experiencing the fruits of the Spirit. We wonder why we're not, uh, you know, active in any ministries. We feel disconnected from church. We feel disconnected from others. Discord and recon- lack of reconciliation. One poison in the church that I know you are all aware of, and I am aware of, is any type of discord or lack of reconciliation. You can hear it in gossip. You can hear it in, you know, little comments that people give to each other. Those things are like poison. When we don't seek to work with each other, you know, a church that doesn't work with each other is just a, a church of a bunch of little kingdoms. Everybody has their little kingdom. And, you know, there might kind of fire shots at each other's kingdom, or you might have a treaty with each other's kingdom at times. But there's no sense that we're, like, all in the same kingdom. And that's one thing to always remember is we're doing that. We got the same goal. Everyone in this room has the same goal. So we're called to work with each other, cooperate. And distrust. Distrust of each other leads to destruction and distrust of God. And then, obviously, the lack of love. 
So these are all things from within that, because we're the enemy in this, with this list, right? We're the enemy. It's me, it's you. We're the ones who promote these things. But Peter reminds us there's also an enemy out there trying to uh, stop us as well. Peter reminds us uh, to be sober-minded in, in 1 Peter 4. He says, be sober-minded. Your enemy is the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, the devil in the scriptures is seen as having no teeth. He's defeated by Christ. But he's still active, whispering. And what does the devil want to do above all things? Destroy God's church. And not just destroy this building. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about destroying faith in Jesus Christ. That we will be, we will be ritualistic uh, believers who don't have real faith. That we would just be about rules and regulation and not about grace. That we would not worship Christ but worship Baal or another idol. That we would not be about God's will but about our will. That's what the devil wants to do. Those are the things that destroy those pillars of worship and community. And so we're called just to be alert of those things. To be alert of the ways that we are responsible for destroying the church and, and destroying God's kingdom work, and also be aware of the way the devil is trying to destroy that too. So this leads us back to the first question. What's your wall? I encourage you this next week just to think about that. What are those ways that God has positioned you uniquely because of your experience and background, because of your trials and struggles, because of your faith and walk with God, what are those places God has uniquely placed you to be a blessing to those who need to be blessed? Allow yourself to believe that. So we can go from here knowing that we need, we need to remember that in worship every week. And we need each other to remind each other of that. And to also walk forward in the ways God is leading us. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, uh, we see that Nehemiah was this person that seemed to have been prepared his whole life. But we know that Nehemiah at that moment did not fully understand that. Because none of us fully understand the ways in our whole life you are leading us and guiding us and calling us. And we don't see it. We're in the middle of right now. We don't see the past and the future like you do. So in the midst of the right now, Lord God... I just ask for your grace upon this congregation that they might know their worth to you. That they might know that nothing is useless in you. That the garbage of their lives, their past, their struggles, their failures, none of that is useless to you. And you use that even for your kingdom work. Help us, Lord, to participate in the work that you're doing in Elmhurst, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families, in this community. Lord, help us to understand who you are and what you've called us to be. Lord, we know that the battle is won in Jesus Christ. We know that the work is finished. We don't do this to earn our salvation. But we do this as a response to your love. Lord God, my prayer is that we would just know more deeply your love and grace. And be drawn from that to knowing that you have a use for us, even as sinners. We thank you, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship.
So as you go, just want to remind you, if you are a member, uh, there will be uh, deacons in the back with nomination sheets. Uh, please pick one up. Uh, they should be by the doors in the back there. And uh, yeah, and also go and just get to know somebody as you fellowship in the fellowship hall. And as we go, know that Christ has completed the wall. Christ has finished the work of salvation in your life. So... Working for God's kingdom is not a way of earning your salvation. Working for God's kingdom is a way of responding to his grace. Is a way of living into the salvation he's already given you. So go in the blessing of God who created you, who loves you dearly. Go in the name of Jesus Christ who saved you and gave you a new life and identity. Go in the name of the Holy Spirit that is with you, reminding you who Jesus is and leading you on now and forevermore. Amen.